Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 28. I am your host, Stephen Oki. This will be our second-to-last episode of season two. We have one more episode coming in two weeks. And this episode features my conversation with Anita Hauk of St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. We had the opportunity to speak at the College Theology Society's annual meeting this past summer, and we talked about the spiritual dimension of Dr. Hauk's upbringing, the place of humor and in spirituality, including why it's not always the best spiritual resource, and how the idea of vocation shapes our lives. We also reminisce about our different experiences at the University of Chicago Divinity School, and we spend probably too much time talking about our love of good tea. As always, you can leave us feedback on the blog or on iTunes, and thank you so much for listening. Today for the Daily Theology Podcast, I'm here with Professor Anita Hauk of St. Mary's College. Thank you for being here. It's such a pleasure. The, the first question I like to start with is, how is it you came to do theology or came to do religious studies or however you want to kind of approach that? Like, What are the experiences or the, the pushes and pulls and whatnot that brought you into to doing this work? Well, pushes and pulls, that's a great way of putting it, actually. You said I could maybe ask you a question. Because yeah. you've done a bunch of these. Yeah, sure. Have you noticed any particular themes or things that have come up in people's responses to yeah. this? There are, yeah. So there are some people for whom they were an altar boy. They yeah. were very, you know, spiritually engaged. They, you know, they had those kinds of questions. And it just sort of organically turns into that kind of process for at least, you know, some of the men that I've interviewed – they were considering religious life as right, a vocation. Right. They were you know, considering being priests, and, and some of them you know, eventually became priests. So that, that's kind of a trajectory. So uh, liturgical, yeah, which yeah. is very appropriate for... Yeah, yeah. For, yeah, <laughs> yeah. right. I, I think for others, there's been something of a... And so for some, that was this like, very natural, kind of easy progression. Yeah, and for yeah. others, it's this like, struggle, this fight, this, you know, th- this very difficult process. I think that's probably the most common one. I think that there's a few people for whom it maybe came to them later as a sort of unexpected uh, turn of interest. Yeah. And they, they had started out doing something else, and some something that they were involved in or some experience that they had maybe turned them towards yeah. wanting to do theology. Mm-hmm. So That's great. Thank you. That's fast because with all of these... I haven't listened to every single okay. one, Steve. Thank I you. I know you'll go back Thanks. and do it. Well, I will. So. You know I will. Thank you. That's great. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I, I guess, I'm, I don't know if I, which of those categories I'm in. I think it, it did start in the natural sense in that for some reason, there is some family mythology about this. I can share if, if that's not too TMI. Mm-hmm. But I was in a non-practicing family, and I went to Mass alone from the time I was seven. Wow. I know, right? So the week after my first communion... I, you know, went to church, and my mom said, you can wear your dress again if you want. And everybody, (laughs) right, like, was that the worst idea ever? And she was raised Sicilian Catholic. She should have known better. But my father was not observant and actually was a, a agnostic, probably agnostic, atheist, psychiatrist who thought religion was a crutch and would kind mm-hmm. of, like, make fun of me for going 
to church, I remember back when January 1st, you're so young, mm -hmm. young Master Steve, but uh, January 1st used to be considered the Feast of the Circumcision. Mm -hmm. you'll, you'll probably edit this out, but I remember him saying, you're going to church to pray to a foreskin? And I'm like, <laughs> well, Dad, we don't actually see it that way, but thanks for bringing this psychiatric, um, and, the Freudian. And is this seven-year-old you when he's, like, making that comment? Or? Oh, yeah. Well, okay. I might have been, I might have been like, you know, early teens okay. or something okay. at All that right. point, but, uh, I mean, he died when I was 15, so okay. we know it was when yeah. I was okay. still in those formative years. Interesting. Right? So he was, and yeah, so Casey thought his training was religion was a crutch. And side note, I came to agree with him at one point I was on crutches for six months in South Chicago in the winter <laughs> working at a parish. So I'd get home at 1030. There's nowhere to park. Mm -hmm. So I'm hobbling two, two blocks on crutches in the snow in South Chicago mm -hmm. in the dark of night. And I realized, you know, crutches, religion is a crutch because they're difficult. Mm -hmm. There are some things that you feel constrained by, but when nothing else will get you where you need to go, crutches mm. will do it for you. So that's wonderful. That's my thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Are we done now? No, no, just, no. No. Oh, okay. I need, we're we need keep more going. Of this. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, because I kind of that was all I had. Um, <laughs> but thanks for letting me work that in so early. So anyway, so uh, yeah, so there I am at church in my lovely dress, and everybody's like, "Where's your family? What's mm -hmm. wrong with her?" And so what I thought was great, I loved my dress, of course, was just very strange. So I was this kid who you know, asked to go to religious ed. We moved right when I would have gone into eighth grade, which was confirmation. I asked, can I go get confirmed? Mm -hmm. I went to religious ed all through high school. Like, nobody mm -hmm. does that. Like, you're confirmed, you're done. Mm -hmm. My friends who were dragged to church, I was jealous of them. I mm -hmm. actually, how, how weird is this for people who are in the really Catholic family? I hadn't gone to reconciliation for years, and I'm now a, a huge, huge fan. Wonderful, wonderful sacrament, very important to me. And uh, I remember going one time and thinking, you know, if I get married and I have kids, we're going to go to confession together. Every <laughs> <laughs> I had a very distorted understanding of what a Catholic family was. I know. I know, right? Like, seriously? I'm just partly also picturing going to confession with my wife and thinking, like, what would that experience be like? So you can but, ponder yeah. that together yeah, when you yeah. get home. That's right, going to yeah. be beautiful for you. So you're welcome. <laughs> you're you. welcome to quote John Hodgman. So, so there was always this interest, and I think also because I was in this kind of exceptional situation and my family, I mean, my mom was supportive enough. She'd been raised observant sure. and, you know, she ended up had, having five kids in four years and she couldn't go to mass mm -hmm. alone anymore and take the five kids and my dad wasn't going to go. So, you know, so she stopped. So, but I had an experience of what it meant to not be religious. Mm -hmm. And I also, and you know, I had questions, and I'm there, and I can't really read the missalette, and I can't follow along because I'm just learning to read. They mm -hmm. used to teach reading in, you know, first, second grade, not like you young people who learned <laughs> so because you're so advanced. And so I think I always had questions, and I was, you know, and also a geek, so we always take ourselves very seriously. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we're reading Sophocles in eighth grade on our own and <laughs> Hamlet. And so I took and nobody understands. And nobody understands. Yeah. Said, oh, my God, but you understand. Yeah. This, was my, this was me. Yeah. yeah, Steve, this is very profound. So now we understand. So, you know, taking myself very seriously. I always thought of faith as including questions and including doubt. And God bless, I don't know who this priest was, but when I was, uh, you know, again, young, elementary school, I heard a priest give a homily on doubt is not the opposite of faith, it's a part of faith. 
and recently my parish priest gave a homily like that. And there was a lot of kids in the church. And I sent him a thank you note. I'm like, you know, it was great. It's always good for me to hear that. But I think about was there somebody else in church who was in that mm-hmm. place I was as a kid and what you just gave them. Mm-hmm. And that this this may be a lifetime of faith that you've opened mm-hmm. up to them. Because they might have thought, I'm, I'm alone. I'm the only one who has these questions. So I guess it was always a part of my life. And then... Did you, did you have, like, periods of, like, falling away? Or, or was it always... Kind of this, like a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I when So uh, between elementary school and junior high, we moved, mm-hmm. and I stopped going to church. There was a church nearby, but it's just things changed, and so instead of you know walking to church by myself, every Sunday I just stopped going. And then I had a like middle school conversion experience, which I don't know... For somebody, this will be meaningful. It came from going to see Jesus Christ Superstar. Nice. <laughs> right? Yeah. I was so embarrassed. Like, for years, how did you become a Christian? Because, you know, I did a little bit of young life stuff. And mm-hmm. they're like, are you Catholic or are you Christian? Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm like, well, I'm trying to be a Christian. So I was really feeling very Christian for a while, and you weren't born yet, but if you had been, I would have loved you because I was walking <laughs> around, and I felt like I have this love for all the world. Mm-hmm. But it, it did start with Jesus Christ Superstar, which somehow just reached out to me at mm-hmm. that age. I don't know why. It was very embarrassing, but I've owned it. Thank you, world. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Steve, for being affirming. And it was just, it was really a sense of Christianity for those of my generation. I went and bought a pocket good news Bible mm-hmm. with the denim cover. Mm-hmm. So it was really seeking Christianity. And it was a while, a couple of years, of really struggling, saying, you know what, you, you need to go to church. You're taking this on now, not just as for whatever reason I did it. The family mythology, by the way, I was born deaf, mm. and my sainted Italian grandmother, Sicilian, Sicilian grandmother, said a novena, and you know, so the, the the mythology in the family is that she made a deal and said, "You give her her hearing, I'll make sure she's Catholic." And mm. I idolized my grandmother, mm-hmm. and going to church with her when I got to stay with her for the weekend was just amazing mm-hmm. for me to have that. So anyway, Did you hearing return early. Or? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And as my person, like three months or okay. something, maybe maybe even less. But you know, my mom would be banging the pots mm-hmm. behind my head as my personality emerged. Of course, the theory came up that I could hear perfectly the whole time, <laughs> and I was just being ornery. I'm like, yeah, you bang those pots, mom. I will turn around when I am ready. So we don't know. We okay. don't know. Okay. There's no way to know. So I eventually convinced myself that if I was going to be a Christian, I needed to do it in community. Mm-hmm. And I would, every Sunday would come around and be like, oh, I don't have to go this week. Do I? I'll start next. But eventually I did. And then again, I went back to reconciliation. And I remember, you know, people have had such different experiences of that mm-hmm. sacrament. And this was back, you go into the box. And it must have been one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. And mm-hmm. I went in and, I mean, I did the whole thing, mm-hmm. uh, everything. That, and I was old enough that I had something other than, you know, you got anything? Thing, yeah, say you hate your brother and you lied to your mom. Okay, <laughs> I mean, I had, you know, I was yeah. I was taking this very seriously. So yeah, I'm early teens or whatever, and Father Brown said, you know, there's great rejoicing in heaven today because you've come back. And I was so lucky that it happened to me because it doesn't happen to everybody. Yeah. Doesn't happen to everybody. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting verklempt. No, you mingle wonderful. amongst yourselves. It was wonderful. Yeah. God bless him. I, I'm sure he's gone to God now, but God bless him. He was a, a good pastor. So you know, so that was that. So it became a part of my life, and, you know, I helped out with Sunday school and stuff like that. I went to college. I didn't think I'd study it. I was very interested in philosophy. I was going to be – so so I was going to be a philosophy and biology major, do pre-med, 
And second semester organic chemistry happened. That's another story. <laughs> uh, but I had to take, you know, here's, here's general education for you, right? I had to take interdisciplinary course in Wesleyan University, Middletown, Connecticut, uh, Jeremy Zwelling, The Myth of the Self. So Joseph Campbell, mm. which when you're like 17, 18, and you're kind of just like, wow, right? So everything is like, it's journeys. That's about how old I was when I read that. Did yeah. you, you had the Campbell thing? Yep. Seriously? Yeah. That, uh, Hero of a Thousand Faces? Yeah, yeah. right? Yep. And it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere everywhere right yeah and for me it was like oh yeah like this like star wars suddenly made way more sense to me yeah because of course yeah he, right he now Campbell. we know yeah. that we're i know because yeah. i had the whole star wars thing i'm like oh my god star- <laughs> right did you love star wars yeah right oh, yeah. i love star wars i'm like the force it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so that was great and and so but i tried not to do it again second semester organic chemistry helped me not stay on the bio track it went into an interdisciplinary, it was called the College of Letters, so philosophy and literature and all that stuff, studied abroad. Where did you study abroad? In Paris. Okay. Or outside Paris, yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you study abroad? Mm-mm. No. No, I was an RA instead that year, oh. which was its own kind of wow, cultural that's, immersion. Yeah, you had your adventure. Yeah. <laughs> but Well, you were you had social skills, so you could be an RA. I, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. right. I mean, I bet. I mean, you're a fun guy. I did okay. Yeah. yeah, you did okay. No, that's great. That's a great thing, too. I could never have done that. Mm. I was very introverted, very shy. Want to, you know, when I think about all the, the, there was a day when I realized, this is jumping way ahead, when I realized I was no longer really burdened by shyness. And, you know, it just hit me like, boy, mm-hmm. I just talked to somebody I didn't know, and I couldn't have done that if I was shy. I guess I'm not shy anymore. And, like, a couple hours later, I'm like, how many years did I pray to get over shyness? Like, is, did it work? Mm. But, but I, every having taken that course, then everything I was writing about, I'm reading Saint Jean Perse, I'm reading. Uh, you know, les des jours and all this stuff. And but I'm, everything I'm looking for is religion. I just mm-hmm. and I'm like, you know what? If this is what you're going to write about, you should study it and mm-hmm. get good at it. So I didn't declare till junior year. Did stuff really quickly. It was much more religion mm-hmm. than theology. My senior project was on a religious revival. I'm from upstate New York near Buffalo, so it was a religious revival in the Seneca Nation, which was near me. And then I, you know, I'm okay, I'm going to teach high school, maybe work in a bakery, maybe go to culinary institute, you know, kind of doing the searching thing. And then so I taught high school for a while, uh, and I had a religious studies degree, so I, they, it was an Episcopal school. They wanted me to teach literature first, mm-hmm. but then they said, oh, okay, you're all right, you can teach religion too. And then I decided to go to grad school and get a master's in education. I'm like, I like this teaching high school thing, do it in the public school. And then my GRE scores were going to expire, and I'm like, I'm never going to get that good a score again. <laughs> and so I'm like, if I ever want to get a PhD, I got to do it now. Yes, that's, that's the same reason I applied for my PhD when I did. It is not. It is. Can we do a f- yeah, yeah, fist bump? Okay. I, and and for me, I, I'd done it, and I went to my master's degree. I went to yeah. University of Chicago for my master's degree. I know I didn't. I and was I, so excited to hear that about you. And then and then I worked for a couple of years. And then, yeah, they were going to expire. And I, I took the GRE. It was the last time for the GRE with the logic test. Oh, my gosh, the, the logic test. And I, yes. and, I, and I didn't want to redo it. And I did like, I, I like writing and everything, but I didn't want to write, like, an essay for an exam. So I was like, all right, I'll apply now. And that's why I did do that. You, we, we can do this. Do you want to brag about your scores or anything? I honestly don't remember them. Oh, like, <laughs> I, I don't. You're I, such a healthy person. The, the only, You're the, so healthy. The only thing I remember is when I was I was a math major as an undergrad. Oh, and yeah. And so I, I nailed, I got a, I got a uh, 800 or whatever on the math score. Nice. But, like, other than it's a nice number, like, it didn't it's really nice matter number, what I was going right, to do. Right, right, right. So, so, like, I was not as strong on the, um, on the uh, verbal, but I did well enough. Yeah. The other thing that was funny is, uh, and I learned this later because I, I became a tutor when I was a PhD student. 
the GRE math is allegedly, it's easier than the SAT math because people who take it often just haven't taken any math since high school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so what I remember from my score is even though I had a perfect score, but that was still only like 87th percentile or something because you a lot of people kidding. get a perfect score. Whereas like if you get a, like a, if you got like a 700 on the verbal, you were in like the 98th percentile. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. That was a lot harder. So that's interesting. That's my, that's my GRE memory. That's interesting, because I did not get an 800 on the math, but I was like 83rd percentile, and I'm like, man, I'm like, now I know why. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I really wasn't all that. Okay, yep. thanks, Devoki. <laughs> Sorry to bring you it's down. It's okay, I got the other scores going for me, which the only use, because like, thank you, ACTE, for running our lives, but there was once <laughs> at USC, remember International mm -hmm. House? So I lived at International House my first year. And there was this guy who was, of course, in the business school mm -hmm. and was kind of, you know, very blowhard. And he was sitting there at a table once, like, he was a little misogynist and whatever, bragging about his GRE scores. And I just walked by with my train and said, if you ever want to compare, let me know. And I just kept walking. Because <laughs> I'm like, I think I got this. So. I know. Is that horrible? Yeah. Yeah. Like, how many sins? Yeah, yeah. How many sins is that? Like, well, pride, yeah, we know. But was there anger behind that? Or what was going on? But wait, we weren't at grad school yet. So I was teaching high school. I was going to get a PhD in English. And I remember writing my essays about how I wanted to study critical theory. And I wanted mm -hmm. to you know, do like that and those. And I couldn't sleep. And I'm like, I still want to do religion. Darn it. Because, mm -hmm. you know, everything. Like, now I'm going to do biology. I'm going to do whatever. And it just kept being religion, religion, religion. So, so I applied to three places. I actually applied to Chicago late. And mm -hmm. they still let me in. Mm -hmm. So I was – but I was – Doing now, so you did the MA mm -hmm. in religious studies. Were you planning to do theology? Yeah. If you stayed, yeah, yeah, yeah. I went and I did theology and I did ethics. Those were the two. I okay, did. okay. And then I, I wanted to take the time off, but I, yeah, I would I wanted to do theology if I'd gone back, but the time I was there, they had almost no theologians. Oh. Uh, Ann Carr had retired. Tracy had retired. Amy Hollywood left. They hadn't hired Kevin Hector, and Catherine Tanner was about to leave. So, like, there just wasn't – and I wanted to do Catholic theology, and they just – Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, so I know you wanted to stay. So that makes I, you a confessor. I thought a lot about that, it, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the interesting thing – I don't know if you experienced this at all, but being – you know, because it has theology, and it had mm -hmm. good theology, obviously. You know, mm -hmm. I did one of my exams with Tracy, uh, another one with Bill Schweiker. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you were you – know, did stuff with him. I don't actually know – sorry, it was with Gamwell. I, mm -hmm. uh, Schweiker and Tracy were on my committee. But it's if you weren't in theology, being called a theologian was kind of mm -hmm. dirty word. Yeah, you know, like right. So I never thought I was a theologian. I mean, I got did my degree in religion literature, and, and I graduated, and I got. But I, I started doing pastoral work. Mm. So while I was there, you know, St. Thomas the Apostle. Mm -hmm. Did you go there? I went to the the, new, went the, Cal the Calvert, Calvert House. house. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you did you ever get to hear Tracy do mass there? Mm -mm. That was a special thing. I got to say, mm. that was really great. But anyway, so. I was working, by the time I had finished my exams, I was working full-time at St. Thomas. And so I was kind of doing theology because if you're doing pastoral stuff, anything I was thinking, I had to speak this language of faith, but also I had to be educating myself. I started out coordinating the RCIA, so I mm -hmm. got into all this uh, catechetical language. And uh, so I guess that was kind of the first time I was really speaking theological language in a way was in, in trying to talk to people about their faith lives. Um, and, you know, Hans Jonas is not so useful for that, mm -hmm. really, although I love him. So, so there was that. But then the questions I was interested in were, were really theological questions. So I did this dissertation on 
laughter at and by God, and not in the Bible, because a lot's been done on that, ancient Greeks and modern Christian okay. literature. So, you know, Mark Twain, Anne Sexton, uh, a bunch of stuff. But it was really a theological question, like, how can you, uh, in the religious imagination, how can you think that laughter is a good symbol for talking about God? Mm. And it works great in the Greeks. Mm -hmm. And I still remember the person who became my director when I was talking about topics, Antony Yu of Happy Memory. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, yes, you can talk about laughter at the gods and the gods laughing with the Greeks. Uh, because they're polytheists, but Christians can't do that. Mm. And then I started finding it, and I'm like, well, what do I do with this? So yeah. it's like, yes, I make it a dissertation topic. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> Flea bird! So, so that was, but it was really a theological question. Mm. So I was still religious studies. Nobody could, and people say, well, it's very theological. I'm like, shut up! Because it's UFC. Yeah. Right? But. Was this still the period where everyone was like Mr. and Ms.? Like no one was professor? Like. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Wait, the period? They don't do that? They. They, what, they, that was what? the biggest thing when I was there. Yeah, really? I mean, I, I, as best I remember, I were, if they were professor, I called them professor or whatever. Yeah, even the guys. Oh yeah, because I think sometimes you would call women professor, like oh, Professor okay. Doniger. Okay, but Mister, you know, Mister U. Huh. Yeah, yeah Mister Rosengarten. Because uh, I, I loved like that. I yeah. uh, uh, that's really sad. Did you ruin that? I, I don't was think it, so. Yeah, you, are you, because I, I think I only found out about that after I had left. But okay. that was a thing. Like, I don't... So what, you're pretty yeah. sure you didn't ruin it. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, well, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> saying anything. I'm just saying. Yeah, it's kind of coincidental, it sounds like. <laughs> so I guess I guess that's kind of it. So, yeah, theological questions and the pastoral stuff. And, and then once I was teaching, then I had this experience, I guess, in my late 30s, and I'm going to be done. Because I know you've had some podcasts where really this is the only question you mm-hmm. get to ask. So how did you become a theologian? <laughs> And my answer is, well, I'm basically not one, but let me talk about it for how long we even go? Because it's interesting to me. No, this is a fascinating oh. story. Like, I, well, thank I, you. Like, keep going. I, oh, okay. I, I, I'm not cutting you off. Oh, right? no. Well, no, not yet. Okay, not yet. But, well, so anyway, so after, then you need your other project. So I realized, you know, I had been so involved in the church, and I had, you know, done full-time ministers, went from coordinating RCIA to being a DRE to being a pastoral associate at St. Thomas, which, mm-hmm. an amazing place. I mean, completely diverse, great Filipino community, great African-American community, the best pastor, God bless him, Jack Fari. You know, just a wonderful, wonderful place, so much lay involvement. The RCIA was spectacular. Mm-hmm. We had wonderful, wonderful teams. We did it, the, and I mean, when they brought me in to do it I'm like Mr. Goja you're like you're, you gotta explain stuff up front like I really was being like they don't know what Eucharist is it's like that they will let them ex-. and I'm like that's ridiculous and then I was like a total conference like oh yeah they're right Mr. Mm-hmm. Goja and we did the full year Mr. Goja mm. so it was it was you know great 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 experience so at, when then I was teaching I need to come up with something else I thought you know okay I'm well into my 30s I'm a single woman in the church being single in churches is hard. Maybe this is my vocation, is mm-hmm. to write about uh, spirituality. But spirituality, I think, has to include a lot of theology of single life. Mm-hmm. Not just single women, because there's a lot of emphasis on that too, but you know, single life in the church and is the language of vocation suitable to that. So, so then my life experience really pushed me into something much more theological. Mm-hmm. So I'm still working on that, but it's tough. Because, like, you've got the training, and people, so we're at the CTS, as I'm sure your little thing will say, and um, there's people who, like, speak encyclical fluently. Mm-hmm. And if I want to do something theological, I have to, like, okay, what are the documents I need to read? Mm-hmm. What's the, I have to, like, 
bother people. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Brian Flanagan, would you read my draft? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'd find somebody else and find somebody else. And so find the people who have the training because a lot of the questions are theological. Even though as a religious studies person or a spirituality person, I mean, I love these interdisciplinary fields. Theology is a part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can do ethnography. Uh, yeah, I can look at literature. Yeah, I can do all this other stuff. But you have to know the theology. And so so I'm a theologian insofar as I have a faith commitment that animates a lot of what I do, even the laughter stuff. And I ask questions that you need. If you want to be in conversation with people in the church, you need the theology. But again, that's always, okay, thank God I'm a lifelong learner. <laughs> I can read Molieris Dignitatum. Mm-hmm. Yes, I can. I can read books about it. So it's just, well, it's like, you know, Tony talking about mm-hmm. learning music. It's like, yeah, I, I can try to teach myself this stuff and then thank goodness have community that will you know talk to me and help would me. would you i mean would you describe like your field really as spirituality is that really where you would situate yourself or or i mean or is that too narrowing to, to say that or I, I so i have been on the board of the society for the study of christian spirituality since i think 2000 okay right and because i'm the secretary treasurer aka sucker <laughs> right I mean, because I was, you know, new faculty member. They said, would you do this? And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, sure, right? Because yeah. that's... Because you say yes to everything. Right? Yeah. You're a treasure. I mean, that, but it's hard work. Mm-hmm. It's not like... You, I mean, you have real responsibilities. So I'm, I'm not... I'm a spirituality person, again, in that some of the questions that I'm asking, like about single life or about laughter or about humor, I just did an article on humor and holiness, that, that again, spirituality has resources there, and spirituality is open to interdisciplinary stuff. I mean, I got in it because that was the first place that... I could give an AAR paper because mm. religion literature, you know, it's mm. a weird kind of very tiny yeah. field. But spirituality, people are like, yeah, we, we do the history. We do everything. So, And that's kind of become my guild. That's where a lot of my friends are. That's mm-hmm. where a lot of my support is. That's when I get to go to conferences in Johannesburg mm. and places, you know, like, who gets to do that? Well, I do because <laughs> I hang out with the spiritualogians. So yeah, I, um, in a way, I'm there – I don't have the – a lot of people in spirituality have very clear methodological ideas. Okay. They're very committed to spirituality, most of the people I know, as separate from theology, again, drawing from it, but yeah. not a subset. I don't have those strong convictions. I care about how the life of the spirit is lived, and I'm interested in some of the approaches of integrating the history and, and, and doing some self-implication and doing all the things spiritually people do. But I don't, I don't know. I guess religious studies is still probably okay. – and again, it is interdisciplinary. So I can say, oh, I'm a religious studies person with some spirituality and some theology and some not very good ethnography mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I guess it, it used to bug me more not to be able to have an identification. You know, i got tenure now, so it's kind of like, <laughs> all right, you know. <laughs> who's anybody really you know, um, I was very lucky to get a job though given that I don't mm. have a really clear yeah. field identification yeah yeah that's right a, I mean that was amazing point. that yeah. was amazing what, one question that comes up for me is uh, how, how do you teach spirituality like as a class mm. I mean and, and I wonder about this in part in terms of uh, I mean the, there's academic literature and there and, and yeah and then there's also this sort of experiential component and then I I have this kind of awkwardness about how to work spirituality and prayer in the, in the classes or whether to do that. Yeah, and so, yeah. what 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 are your thought? I mean, or your thoughts or your experience or. And and I don't teach spirituality okay. explicitly at all. I don't have any classes called spirituality. I've thought about doing it though, in part because that is you know the work of translation. Mm-hmm. There are students for whom 
that is attractive, yeah. right? It might not mean the same thing, but they know there's something in there they're looking for. Uh, the people I know who do it, like you know, Glenn Young, uh, who's here and so on. Um, yeah, there is a wonderful canon to draw on. There are practices to incorporate. I think I draw on spirituality. I teach uh, or have taught in the past. Um, I survived two terms as chair of my department and two terms as chair of the writing program. So mm-hmm. I haven't – most of what I teach these days is 101. Okay. But I used to teach a 200-level class. We have two requirements called Experiencing God. Okay. And so we would do Teresa Vavala. And we would also do William James. And we would do, you know, a bunch of other things that deal with the spiritual life and, and what that means. So autobiographies. Does spirituality get worked even into, like, the 101-type class? or? Uh, like, I mean, as a component or a dimension? Yeah. Or? Yeah, it's a great question because, again, people get very uh, – there are wonderful – intelligent, impressive arguments about exactly what spirituality is and and how to, you know, then how would you bring that into a classroom? Uh, One of the things that I think I have brought in, but, you know, but comparative theology does it too. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, I think a lot of what spirituality does, theologians do in their classes too, is this idea that spirituality would call it self-implication or self-reflection. So every class I teach, doesn't matter what level, we, there's a hermeneutic circle that I developed watching what are my classes doing when they're going well. And I noticed there were kind of these steps of reflection. And the first time I went to Wabash, that was kind of my project. You used to be mm-hmm. you go to Wabash and you have a little thing. And so I worked, Trish O'Connell Killen was one of the great people there. I went to Collegium, uh, got some great conversation partners there. So now I kind of have this circle that I teach them. And that's very much, in some ways, spirituality. And when we do site visits, if they go to the mosque or the Hindu temple or whatever, because my one-on-one is kind of a comparative theology, world religions... Mm-hmm thing that they do a log and they're reflecting on what was their starting point how they feel going in what were their questions what does it tell them about them uh, what did they decide reflect on and and I think you could call that you know we don't push it too hard we don't put it in conversation with the canon of Christian spirituality mm. but there are ways in which I think by intention and in the results that students talk about there's an element that I would call spirituality for a lot mm-hmm. of them but I don't push it yeah. Because I'm, it's a religious studies class, and I'm basically a religious studies person. Yeah. But there are a number who explore that in really powerful ways, and it will open something mm-hmm. up for them that is is deeply spiritual. Yeah. yeah. I, te- I mean, I teach a lot of intro courses as well. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I teach a lot of ethics courses also. And I've thought about, like, should I, should I incorporate prayer or something like that into the class? And, and I, I have this very and – and, and they're theo- – I mean, well – uh, there, I mean, there really are theology classes, mm-hmm. and, and so I've, I have, but I have this resistance to working prayer into the class, and I, I can't, I can't entirely figure out what my resistance is. But I mean, some of it is that I don't want to like feel like I'm shoving down their throats, or I don't yeah. want to feel like I'm proselytizing or anything like that. But I also, I, I, I don't know how to work that kind of thing in into a situation where I'm also grading students. And I don't. Uh, it's not that like I'm going to grade you on your prayer and how and how <laughs> successfully did you petition God for whatever you petitioned God for? Yeah, what are your outcomes? Yeah, <laughs> did you know, God? Like, t- you know, we got a rubric your and, outcomes. And that. yeah. That's right. Yeah, but uh, but it's and it's not, it's not so much that it would be a graded thing, but even just the thinking about the 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 power that I have as the yeah. teacher in the classroom and the way in which that can be conflictual. Uh, I don't know, but I also on a certain level I feel like. I'm leaving something out of a of a theological class by not engaging that in some way. 
But then I also feel like if I just engage it from an academic perspective, that I'm not really doing justice to prayer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you can't win. And and one of the things, (laughs) you can't, right? Because when when you have them them face-to-face, and I know you do online too, 15 weeks, three credit class, you have them for 45 hours a week minus 10 to 15 hours that's totally inadequate for them to get across campus, 37 and a half hours. Mm -hmm. And that's not the passing the papers out and the questions Mm -hmm. to which you wonder, do I say that's on the syllabus Mm -hmm. or is that snarky? Mm -hmm. Jesus, what do you want me to do with Mm -hmm. the question that's (laughs) answered on the syllabus? I mean, that's a real growing area for me, honestly, is that kind of stuff. So... I mean, I think this is all, it really is a matter of very difficult choices about not just what's important to me, but what's so important to me that I'm going to prioritize mm-hmm. in 37 and, a half, uh, 37 and a half hours. And given, well, it's like when you've got a paper that's too long and you're like, what do I cut? What do I cut? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not 100% sure of this point, so that's going, mm-hmm. right? Otherwise, I'm going to be that person who yeah. goes too long. And so the idea of prayer or even silence in the class, I'm like, if I've only got 37 and a half hours with these students, and I'm not 100% sure about how that's going to influence the power dynamics, mm-hmm. and if it's a student who is having a tough day, or a stu- you know, who's grappling with the odyssey, and why is my mom sick, or why was I sexually sure, assaulted, sure. or why was I whatever, I'm like, that's just going to go. Mm-hmm. There are people who do it, and I think they do it from such conviction that maybe it goes better than yeah. if I did. But, boy, I mean, I'm using all my prayer just to be compassionate to the students a lot of the mm-hmm. time, honestly. Mm. And increasingly with students being all – I mean, they always have been, right? Even the however many who self-identify as Catholic, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of struggle. And there are the priests who don't say there's rejoicing in heaven yeah. because you've come back. They're the priests who said whatever, and they're the priests yeah, – it's complicated. Uh, so I guess, you know, it's a discernment process. But, yeah, I don't do it. Mm-hmm. I don't do it. I've never been tempted. I don't even wear a cross. Mm-hmm. I have some beautiful ones because my family may not be religious, but they got nice taste in jewelry, <laughs> and they're very supportive of me. And when they're, like, would you pray for something? I'm like, well, you know, God would really be more excited if you prayed. He is me all the time. No, would you pray? And then they call back, like, to our he got better! And I'm like, look, don't, this is, no, you prayed, and he got me. I'm like, no, I don't do it. I don't know. But who knows? Maybe they're right. So, yeah, so I don't even want to declare myself that way in case that's going to block me off from some yeah. student for whom that is yeah. too painful. When I talk to them, then it's great. And then you can have that pastoral language when mm. you find out where they are. But it's, you know, you got 25, you got 30. I don't know how big your classes are. Yeah, there's about 25. They're everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Right? There's so, and, and then there's conservatives who are strong in their faith. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, strong. Mm-hmm. And the the prayer won't be the prayer that they that speaks to them. So mm-hmm. yeah, I just you know thirty seven and a half hours. I'm not gonna yeah. I'm not gonna do it. But there's places, there's classes mm-hmm. and so on where it is. We'll do breathing exercises sometimes mm-hmm. just to experience that. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's a tough one. It's yeah. a tough one. I hear you. One other thing I, I was wondering about a lot is one, you're obviously hilarious, and Thank and, you. and but two, you like you you said you before like you've done work on laughter and religion and the laughter oh, and yeah. the Gaza with the guys yeah and I actually was wondering like can you say more about that and kind of maybe what the question or what like how you phrase the question or what the interest in that is but also I'm curious like is that something that comes up in classes is that something that has shaped your own spiritual life like yeah you know it's because when I I think part of you know yeah excited about a dissertation topic 
thought it was interesting, and not many people had done it. So yeah, but I but even, really. I mean, recently you said you had an no, no. I keep right? doing like, yeah, it, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, no. I just gave a paper yesterday on the Rizos Pascalis. You mm-hmm. know, this tradition of. Do you know about the Rizos Pascalis? No, but I saw I saw the list. And yeah. you didn't come yet. I did not. come. No, you no. did. That's interesting. I had a different one. I had to go. Oh to yeah, but yeah. Okay, that's fine. They, you know, a lot of people <laughs> said that to me, Steve. That's fine. <laughs> You know, all of us funny people, it's always from the pain. Mm-hmm. You know, Bill Murray, crying on the inside kind, mm-hmm. I guess. So, I, but I thought there would be a real, and people have done this, I thought there would really be something like, let's recover laughter as a spiritual resource. You know, where the people, this is such a cliche, but right, we're good at the 40 days of Lent. We really are not good at the 50 days of Easter. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's too long to be happy. I can't mm-hmm. do, don't ask that of me, man. I'll give up the Diet Coke. I'll go to the stations, whatever. Don't ask me to be happy for 50 days. And I really thought that there would mm-hmm. be something there that I could say, this is a spiritual resource we need. And, you know, laughter is so complicated and it's so often nasty that it isn't a very good spiritual resource, I don't think. Uh, If it arises organically, that's great, but I can't recommend it, Hmm. right? Because you're a better person than me. We've established that earlier, (laughs) Uh, not just at math, but, you know, existentially. But people like... I wouldn't push that too hard. No, okay. (laughs) But people like me have have sometimes been known, you know, you say something to somebody that's a little snarky, and they don't take it in the spirit intended. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, I was only kidding. And you were kind of kidding, mm-hmm. but there was it wasn't 100% kidding. Yeah. Right? There was some edge to it. There was an edge to it, yeah. and there was a little anger behind it, and there was, you know, passive-aggressive or aggressive-aggressive or whatever. And laughter's like that. So second psalm, mm-hmm. right? Everybody goes second psalm. Um, you know, the one who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in mm-hmm. derision. And Milton reads that as, you know, because you have this wonderful biblical poetry where you repeat ideas rather than uh, repeating sounds. says, you know, so that's the first person of the Trinity and the first one. And then why does it repeat it? Well, because Jesus is mm-hmm. laughing too. And it's not a laughter you want to be on the receiving end of yeah. at all. Now, there is this great story. And if this is what you want to hear, you let me know or whatever. But... I think most Gentiles' favorite story in the Talmud, the story of the oven up Achnai. Mm. So there's a bunch of rabbis who are arguing over a, you know, a point of halakha. And uh, Rabbi Eliezer is the one who dissents. And he's like, no, 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 this. And all the other rabbis are like, nope, nope, this, we agree. What it so Rabbi Eliezer says, kind of you know, paraphrasing, translating here, if I'm right, may the stream flow backwards. The stream flows backwards. And the other rabbis say, no, 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 that, you know, there is no halakha in the stream. Well, if I'm right, let this carob tree move 100 cubits. It moves 400 cubits. And they're like, no, 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 the halakha is not in the carob tree. If I'm right, let the walls of the schoolhouse tilt. And they tilt. And then the rabbis say, no, no, the law is not there. And so they tilt back a little bit. So they're only half tilted now. A voice from heaven comes down and says, why? And for those who really know the story, I'm sorry, I'm not you know, getting it verbatim. Uh, my apologies. A voice from heaven comes down and says, why do you disagree with Rabbi Eliezer, given that in all things the halcha agrees with him? And the rabbis say, it is not in heaven. So the idea being that, <laughs> right, the Torah was given mm-hmm. to humans, and now this is... It is ours, and part mm-hmm. of the Torah is, after the majority, will you incline? Years later, huh. I, but we're not done yet. No, no, There's more I, to think about, but I'm right? processing. You yeah. are. I could see that you're thinking. That's good. You're a yeah. thinker. That's good. You could do this for a living. That could be your <laughs> day so. job. Yeah. So years later, I guess, at some point, Rabbi Natan uh, runs into the prophet Elijah and says, what did the Holy One, blessed be he, do on that day? 
And Elijah says, he laughed and said, my children have overruled me. My children have overruled me. Now, this is a spirituality I can get down with. Now, there is a little bit of debate. Ted Cohen, at the University of Chicago philosopher of happy memory, wrote one of my favorite books, one of the best books on laughter and humor ever, jokes. Buy it. Go buy it. A lot of good jokes in there, too. And he said that the laughter was, you know, God condemning, like, what do they think they're doing? But really, everybody else I've talked to, including my comparative theology textbook that I teach from now, says that it's really this kind of joyful parental laughter of, well, you know, you, you want the kids to grow up? And look, they're growing Well, Well, look at that. Look at that. They actually, they become independent grown-ups. Huh. They, I mean, you know, they may not be listening to me, but ultimately I wanted them to, to do this for themselves, and they're doing it. And ah, mm-hmm. all right, all right. And that would, that's a different kind of laughter. So there's the second psalm laughter. There's that, oh, no, I was only kidding. Mm-hmm. So laughter is so complicated. And there are theories of laughter. There's three main theories, but there's no, and, uh, you know, at some point, my eschatological book, at some point I hope to get this in print, say, you know, they don't work all the time. Mm -hmm. But I think most, you know, the incongruity theories, well, you laugh because it's incongruous. Well, when a little kid is learning to walk, and you're toddling along, and they fall down, and they're just kind of looking around, they're not hurt, and they're like, oh, (laughs) that's There's nothing incongruous about somebody who's, right, right. So, but we're laughing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe that explains a certain kind of humor, but it doesn't explain laughter. And you laugh when you're exasperated, and you laugh when you're exhausted, and you laugh when you're crying Mm -hmm. sometimes. So so that's why I think it's so interesting, because it's absolutely polyvalent. Mm -hmm. So what I think is so interesting is that it's relational. There's actually a psychologist, Robert Provine, did this analysis of laughter in people's interactions. And found that only 10 to, when they, you know, recorded these conversations and saw when people left, it's really a part of conversation. Only 10, now our conversation is different because, as you say, we're both hilarious, right? Yeah, so that's, we're just funny, right? So, but only in in regular people's conversations. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay to do, right? The us and them, that's that's okay, yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Because I did make Biden a verb just because mm-hmm. of me. You know, Joe Biden says so many bad things. I just say, I just... That only 10 to 20% of the times when people laugh in conversation, is it because somebody said something discernibly funny? Mm. I did some improv at U of Chicago. Mm. And people laugh at improv not because you say something clever and funny. If you go for the funny line, chances are it's not yeah, going to work. Right. Have you done improv? Yep. Yeah, okay, there you go, right? So they laugh because you got it to work, mm-hmm. and there's just something very collaborative. and The way it comes together. Exactly. Yeah. And there's, it's really a laughter of delight, mm-hmm. more than laughter of, right, of humor. When you see that they did, ah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And you don't, you don't feel it that way. You think it's funny. But if you write, mo- wrote mm-hmm. most of those improv skits down, the transcripts wouldn't be that funny. Yeah. Every once in a while you get something that's funny and that works, but usually it's the ego going for the funny. That mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that, I think laughter is really fascinating because it's relational. And mm-hmm. that makes it ethical. So are you going to use it to bring people into community? Mm-hmm. Who are you going to bring into community? Are you going to bring just the just people into community? Mm-hmm. Are you going to bring the thems mm-hmm. into community? Can we joke about us and them, especially two white people yeah, sitting yeah. here who have good time? Can we... I'm, we're the us and themers of all time. Yeah, Can we yeah, even yeah. joke about that? Or is that, you know, is that something like, you know, we, we can't do this yeah. yet. Yeah, and this comes up a lot, especially, you know, in the last few years in terms of when 
when comedians try to joke about things like race and sex and whatnot and are trying to do it as subversive as a way of critiquing those issues, right. but it still can come across as tone deaf or as, yeah, yeah. Or as just reinscribing the thing they think they're subverting. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, there's this great joke. You know, it's a Chicago Humanities Festival. I don't know if you're aware of that. Mm-hmm. When you're probably studying too hard. But they had one on humor a couple years ago, and they had somebody there who was talking about different kinds of humor and uses of humor, and, and this kind of thing came up. He said, you know, there are some things that should not be joked about. For instance, now he had said earlier when he told a joke, if you knew the answer, go ahead and shout it out, right? Mm-hmm. So he says, so for instance, things that shouldn't be joked about, there's a joke, how many feminists does it take to screw in a light bulb? Do you know this one? Mm-mm. So I knew this one, so I shout out, that's not funny, mm-hmm. which is the answer, mm-hmm. and people laugh. And so he goes on to say, you know, feminism is still very important. And, yeah, there may be a stereotype that yeah, activists tend to be pretty serious. Mm-hmm. They're dealing with very difficult and often very painful and tragic situations. And, yeah, they can get pretty serious about their work and, yeah, sometimes about themselves. But we shouldn't be joking about that. The end of the talk, Q&A, somebody raises their hand and says, so what was the punchline to that feminist <laughs> joke? <laughs> <laughs> and the, he was a little bit mean. All he said was, some people get it and some people don't. And just like, this poor woman is so, what's the answer to the joke? So that's, that's another very difficult thing is what can you do? And, and one of the things that's, I think, amazing right now is, for instance, there's a number. There are so many comments. I mean, Larry Wilmore, mm-hmm. uh, Key and Peele. And there's a number of Muslim comedians who are actually doing the work of translating through humor for people who aren't in an underrepresented group mm-hmm. or a group that, you know, Muslims in America that are subject to uh, derision and ostracism, ostracization? What's, what's that now? I think Ostr- it's ostracism. Ostracism. Okay, good. We'll yeah. go with that. And, there, like, did you ever see Little Mosque on the Prairie? This no, I, I saw a couple of those, yeah. Right? So, uh, you know, Zarka Narwaz goes and talks to people in mosques, like, what makes you laugh about your mosque? What drives you crazy? And Bill's a sitcom about that. And it ran, what, five, six seasons? It was quite successful mm. in Canada. They wanted, from what I hear, they wanted to run it in the U.S. Like, it's making money. Let's do it in the bigger <laughs> audience. Like, Americans aren't ready for this. Yeah. You know, like a portrayal of normal life that's funny and, mm-hmm. you know, actual characters who are different. Mm-hmm. We can't, it was very sad. Um, but so I just think it's amazing that there are people who are willing to do that work of using humor to say, look, here's who we are and let's laugh about it together. And that's a way of, of uh, doing justice. But, yeah, for, like, I, I, you may be a feminist, but I would say don't tell that joke about mm-hmm. feminists. Like I tell my male feminist friends, like I don't, I don't know if you should tell that. Yeah, because people, you know, your body well, doesn't. You know, or me, it, I mean, there's a lot of women who aren't feminists too. Yeah, but it, I mean, it does affect the the context of the joke if I tell it. Yeah, so, right, yeah. right. So it's that community aspect of it. So yeah, you asked me about laughter, and it's like this serious conversation because, <laughs> it, well, right. So yeah. this is why it wasn't kind of the spiritual. And there's plenty of stuff. Jim Martin has a you know perfectly lovely book Mm -hmm. between heaven and mirth that Mm -hmm. so there's ways you can apply this but he's got a chapter on you know when your life stinks Mm -hmm. so there's there's ways of doing it teaching i think humor is if you're careful and and you do step in it sometimes so if you use it right yeah you've had this right like not not in any like really terrible way yeah 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 yeah, sometimes it's well i mean one yeah jokes don't land but then two sometimes just if you phrase it just wrong yeah it's (laughs) And it's yeah. so sad, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or even here, like with the um, you know talk I gave yesterday, there were a couple. I was trying to put jokes in my talk. Usually, I'm working on laughter, so I figured. But there was a couple like, OK, 
okay, I thought that was funnier than you're mm-hmm. giving me credit for right there. That was very minimal. <laughs> so you just, you know, defense, you know, what you do? So, um, but it's endlessly interesting. And because, you know, like theology for somebody who's mm-hmm. trying to live in the presence of God all the time, it's endlessly useful. I mean, the more I learn about laughter, Ted Cohen, again, this wonderful book, he, well, what do you do with, you know, somebody tells, uh, you know, an offensive joke, and what do you do? You know, what if it's a funny joke? Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, don't deny that it's funny, but then work to change the world so it isn't funny anymore. So that stereotype mm-hmm. that was very cleverly negotiated in the language of that joke, work to change it so that that's, what, what do you... What do you yeah. mean that's not funny? Feminists are, are I don't get it. I yeah. mean, we want to not get those jokes ultimately. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, like like some organizations will describe themselves as working towards their own obsolescence. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So we want to change humor. You know, it's a complicated thing. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated thing. But, yeah, so, so there's a little spiel on laughter for you. Yeah, yeah. Super helpful. Yeah, yeah. What One sort of follow-up to that, you talked about, humor and laughter being relational. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering about tying this back into the question of like gods, the re- like the relationship between the human and the divine in terms of like laughter and humor. Mm-hmm, I mean, you had the mm-hmm. example of, you know, sort of God der- God's derisive laughter. At, yeah, in right. The center, but but uh, I'm also thinking about, I, I know for, you know, many people I know like that, that that very famous image of like laughing Jesus, yeah, is is like is a big like it's a, it's an icon for them. Of, oh yeah, of the like not stern God, the like like joyful, you know, changing water into wine. That's you know, right. Party, party and then drinking Jesus. it. Yeah, and right? then drinking right? it. Yeah. And I, I I'm wondering sort of what you would say about you know the role of laughter in terms of the relationship between the divine and human. Um, yeah, um, it's. I mean, when you bring Jesus in, actually, it's, it's, it was amazing to me how debated that was, did Jesus laugh? Because mm-hmm. I assume, right, you see that picture, have you always assumed Jesus, if you thought about it, did you assume that Jesus would laugh? It, it never occurred to me that he wouldn't have. Right. But I, I remember there was this one, um, one of the, like, TV movies about Jesus that came, I think it came out in, like, 2000 or 2001, there's a scene where he's he's doing the the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking and he says things and he says things that like if we hadn't been hearing them for two thousand years might sound a little ridiculous to us, right? And and the way they played it in the in the show is like he says something and like people mock him and you see him like kind of laughing and joking and like working like it's like he's working a heckler wow. almost. And I remember thinking how bizarre this was <laughs> because. So often, the like a lot of the portrayals of Jesus are even a Jesus Christ superstar. Like, I mean, it's a pretty trippy thing. That's but right. even yeah. he's still this like very. There's this seriousness in this. Oh my gosh! Him. Yeah. And the emotion that you see is sadness and anger. Yeah. But it's not usually joy. Yeah. No, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's a great observation. I would love to know what that movie is. If you ever track it down, I, I don't. Yeah. I'll, like Robert Downey Jr. as Jesus. I, I, I mean, think who it might have been. That? I think it might have been there was one that Jeremy Sisto was in, and it might be that one. Which wow, also, which, that's so interesting. It also has this this terrible like agony in the garden scene where where uh, Satan has come to tempt him one more time, and is showing him this like vision of all the horrors that were going to come in Jesus's name, and it's like, and it's the Inquisition, and it's the Crusades, and then it's the Nazis, and it's like, and, and like, wow. there's this weird way, and, and it's sort of like, like yeah. I, I that doesn't. I don't know. That that part was a little more incongruous, but I don't remember if that was even the same movie. I don't know. It's all it's around like early 2000s. Yeah, like. okay, super interesting. Cuz there's um 
you know, so, okay, yeah, so there were those, like, well, you know, Jesus could not have laughed, and Jesus' followers shouldn't have laughed, shouldn't laugh. But there's a lot saying, well, if you read his stuff in context, you know, yeah, there's hyperbole, and Mm -hmm. there's humor. Mm -hmm. And he would, as a good rabbi, he would use that as a technique, plus kids liked him. Like, Mm -hmm. seriously? (laughs) So he must have been, like, right? Like, uh, I remember when my stepdaughter, Caitlin, she must have been, like, and she's like, wow, you know, you're really funny. And I'm like, well, Caitlin, it's not that hard. All I have to do is say underpants and you and Ian crack up. And they go. <laughs> so, you know, but, you know, kids, mm-hmm. you have to kind of be willing to, you know, get down there. So, um, so with Jesus, I think it's pretty easy. And that's interesting. What I found really the complicated stuff is when you think of God not incarnate laughing. Mm. And again, this is an, mm-hmm. an image, mm-hmm. this is the religious imagination, all the different things that we use to imagine the divine in one way or another. Yeah, it's not... So here's a religious study thing. So I think it's really interesting. And, you know, if you look at Krishna, for instance, you know, there's Krishna the butter thief, that, which is funny. That's very... In, so in terms of comparison, it's interesting. In terms of the Greeks, it's really interesting. And the Iliad, the laughter of the gods and the Iliad is what really got me started you know, the Bacchae. So it's really interesting. Theologically, I don't find laughter a useful image in my own spiritual life. Mm -hmm. The picture I have of Jesus that's smiling, I'm having a bad day, (laughs) is this one of Jesus, like, holding a lamb. Have you Mm -hmm. seen it? Like, the lamb is, like, the lamb looks like it's smiling. The lamb might be like, but it's just, like, totally, like, snuggled up there. But the I I don't turn to laughter. And and the people who do it well, yeah, it's usually I mean like Mark Twain mm-hmm. does it really well. And Sexton. I, I don't I don't know if she's the greatest poet, but she's a great theologian. She has she has images of God laughing. But there is always that edge of darkness because you can never be a hundred percent sure what it means. Mm-hmm. Even with ourselves we can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, with people you're really, really close to, you can. But otherwise, you, you really can't be sure. And, and that's why, again, it's interesting because in terms of the religious imagination, because it's so unstable, once you realize what it is, once you think a little about laughter and say, yeah, I've gotten it wrong, but I've stepped mm-hmm. in it. I've watched people step in it. My husband and I got in a fight. Um, somebody told me a great story yesterday. Nancy, I don't know her last name. I don't know if you know her. But she, after my talk, she said, yeah, I've got this, this story about a priest at a baptism who was preaching on Jesus's asking Peter, do you love me, right? And he said, you know, you ask somebody over and over to, you know, get the assurance. Mm-hmm. You know, she says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And so, and it's a joyful occasion, right? So everybody's in that happy liturgical space. And then when they're doing the baptism and he's asking the assembly the question, so do you renounce Satan, da-da-da? And he, they say, you know, uh, the right thing for whichever question it was. And then he's like, well, you know, I'm not so sure. Can you say it again? And they laughed because they thought that he was echoing the story and he got angry. Because mm. so, they thought, oh, we have this inside joke now. And he's, you know, he wants to be assured that we're rejecting Satan. And, uh, but for him, it was, you just laughed at a very somber moment. Mm. So it's total miscommunication. So the reason it, it can be useful by people like Sexton or Twain or Stanley Elkin, the Jewish-American author, or other people have used this 
to depict the divine smiles in Dante, because I think smile after really on a continuum, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the smiles in Dante or, or so many other places, definitely in the Greeks, the Bacchae. What's interesting is that it, it's a symbol that declares its imperfection and declares mm. its ambiguity. So I think there's a way in which it has a little bit of a, an anti-idolatry mm-hmm. mechanism built into it. If you're going to think of God laughing, you've got to know this is just an image. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something I can take from it. If it means love to me, I can do that. But I also know that it's ambiguous mm-hmm. and it's complicated. and So, so I know it doesn't capture God. Mm-hmm. Just as doesn't capture a relationship with a human sure. being. So, you know, again, it's interesting. And I, and I think there really is an ethical responsibility to use it well, those of us who use it, and to receive it mm-hmm. well. Uh, you know, a joke is, is a gift. I, laughing in a healthy relationship, laughing politely is not a failure. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, again, Provine's research. Mm-hmm. We don't laugh just because something's funny. Yeah. There's, it's connection mm-hmm. of some sort. I mean, why are we talking? Because we were cracking up at an event that was very appropriate for us to be <laughs> cracking up at. So, you know, so there's a connection that can mm-hmm. come out of that. But, I mean, it has to be used with such great care. So there's a real ethics of that. Like, if I'm mm-hmm. going to do this... Am I doing it? And then, of course, if it's going well, and again, you're a better person than I am, but in improv, right, mm-hmm. where yeah, there's an ego-feeding thing there, is, there yeah. right? Yeah. And in a classroom, if you're on a roll and mm-hmm. you know they're, they're laughing and you get the evaluation, like, she's so funny, mm-hmm. I didn't even know the class is 75 minutes long, and it's so <laughs> fun to learn. And so you have to be really careful about that, too, because it can be a real, mm-hmm. yeah, it can really invoke ego when what you want to do is have it be a tool for or tool that's the wrong word but an expression of compassion and mm-hmm. a means of inclusion yeah and, and i mean yeah communal formation and yeah kind of like, i mean there's something about laughing together that sort of bonds a group and there's you know, the having the joke together i mean yeah so yeah absolutely and when you can do it with people who are different from you like you've got this power structure that you know kind of separates you and your students and if you can again they may laugh to be polite because mm-hmm. they're like it's a teacher but if you can generally get to a point where you have in jokes in your class mm-hmm. and it comes up I mean there I think that's okay it's not prayer but it does something of what prayer in a class mm-hmm. I think is trying to do which is to kind of build this community and, and again it's not containable um, in some ways, so there's a vulnerability in, in inviting mm-hmm. laughter into a, a group, a classroom, or otherwise. Yeah. Uh, wow. So, yeah. Okay, well, that was exhausting, Steve. I, know. I don't know what we, you know, it's just. Well, we, we, we just have a, a couple uh, little questionnaires left. and Oh, my and, gosh. And, I will, right. and you're free. <laughs> so, so let, me, let me start out with this one. Are you more of a coffee person or a tea person? Oh, Boy, Steve, that's or so less than them. That's so, no. I love the fair trade organic Assam from Coffee, Tea, Etc., which is a little place, I think, in Ohio that I mail order in. So I'm really big on the fair trade. Mm-hmm. I think fair trade's really good. And a really good cup of tea. I mean, I like coffee. I'm, I'll have coffee. Mm-hmm. I kind of go in phases. But, man, I love, I love really nice. Now, the thing is, I had to kind of get off caffeine a little bit because UFC, I used to drink like five cups a day. <laughs> and I'm like, and, and one day I was washing, I, I had my, um, and I was really a coffee person more than, and I had one of those glass plunger things, mm-hmm. and I was washing it out in the morning, 
and it broke, and I cried. <laughs> and I'm like, girlfriend, you need to back away from the caffeine. Like I was saying, I wasn't sure what you were going to ask me. So last night when I'm lying awake, because we're at CTS, where you're trying to, like, keep your sheet on the plastic mattress. And I'm like, what if you ask me, like, who fascinates me to read or something? And I was, you know, thinking of people who have fascinated me and have been important that I've read. And, of course, you're not going to ask that. But I was thinking, you know, I really need to evaluate how much caffeine I mm-hmm. had in my system when I decided I loved that book. <laughs> I'm like, Hans Jonas, I want to do this my whole do you, life. Do you have like a like a number of coffee cup system for like how, how caffeinated you were? I should have done. I should have. <laughs> the worst was the worst was if you because you know when you have five cups of coffee a day you can be drinking it at night. So you have like mm. your Turkish coffee at night with your you know your meal and then you have a glass of wine. So you're wired mm. and you're. You know, your inhibitions are where they should not be. <laughs> and then you decide it's a good idea. Like some people like call their exes at that point. No, I would write poetry. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, and you think, because you think mm. it's really good. Mm-hmm. And then the next you're like, I should go back and revise that poem. And you're like, oh, no. It's a, like, oh, burn. You know, so. You wouldn't get yourself back into the coffee wine state at which point I, that poetry was good? Well, or? that, right. But, you, but at that point, you like, you know, you're delu- you want to live in the truth. You want to live in the truth. And coffee. And so, yeah, so I mostly do tea. I decaffeinate it a little bit. And then I, you know, I get this decaf tea, which is not as good. But yeah, no, I, I love a good cup of tea. I do okay. love a good cup of tea. Yeah. Yeah. You? I'm definitely a tea person. Are you? Yeah. I would have put you. See, that just goes to show when yeah. you make assumptions. I actually, I don't drink coffee almost ever. Wow. And when I do, it's espresso. But otherwise. Okay, yeah. Yeah, not at all. So what's your tea? I like Earl Grey a lot. Actually, and I drink a lot more iced tea than I do mm. hot tea. Earl Grey makes a beautiful iced it tea. It makes a beautiful, yeah, it makes a really right? good one. And I got, a, I got a really nice, like, loose leaf from this tea house in Sarasota where my parents live mm-hmm. that I've been, like, Pretty quickly making my way through because it's really good. Yeah, yeah. But I also really like uh, like hibiscus and like sort of fruity teas for iced tea. Hibiscus, I can't. Oh, it's, it's that so... tartness. I it, can't. And it's do just it, the man. right level for me because okay. I don't like super tart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but like, I get, like I'll, I'll, so I'll get like the, the the passion tea at Starbucks. Like, and, okay. that, and that's where I learned this. Yeah. And they always like, you want sweeteners? Like, no, I don't. Like, it's the right. It's just the right level. Wow. Um, and there's this tea we got. There's this tea we got from Whole Foods. And it's tea bags, and it's, it's like, it's unnecessarily expensive. It's a little bit of is a Is it Rishi? I don't remember what brand it is. It comes in like a, a circular. It might, or, yeah, it could, or Republic I, of Tea, I think does yeah, that Yeah, it might too, be, yeah. but it's like, it's like, it's like $14 for 30 bags. It's absurd. But it's this like blueberry hibiscus. It's amazing. Yeah. It's so good. So I like ration it so that it'll last like a yeah, couple yeah, months. Because. Yeah. Dude, you got, yeah, the loose leaf is so much cheaper. It when is. You, when you work it out, you know? It is, and it's, it's just a matter, like, the, the struggle I've had is sometimes, like, I'll smell it in, like, the, the tea shop. Oh, yeah. be like, oh, this is going to be good. And then I'll make it and be like, I actually don't like this very much. And, yeah. And so, like, with, if it's any Earl Grey, it'll be fine. So, like, I don't mind buying yeah. it that in larger yeah. things. But, like, I bought this, this mango one from a place it smelled so good in the store, and I got like a four-ounce tin, which is a ton. That's right? a lot of tea, it's a yeah. a lot of tea, because no. like, I, I, I had been searching for a good mango tea, and it smelled great. And I made it, and it had this like soapy taste to it. Oh, that's so sad. And, and, I, and, I, and I was like, it's, it's the glass. So I, like the next day I tried Yeah, 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 right? Water temperature, yeah, no, steeping I, time. I did, a, I did a lot of experiments. Yeah, right, it, right. It's a, and what I learned, and this is 
like me not not investigating enough ahead of time. It's a white tea, and I don't like white teas. Uh, I didn't know that before this tea. Like I, I, I what I what I wanted was a mango black. Tea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And that's what I learned. So now I have all this extra mango tea that I like very slowly. Like yeah. Work my way through, and it's a really nice tin for tea. So I want to okay. Keep it yeah, you want the tin. Yeah. But <laughs> but here's the hard thing because I love good tea, but you you can tell by my little plug here that you know, several it must have been 13 years ago. I used to give up like sweets for Lent because mm-hmm. I love sugar so much. <laughs> and um, you know, and then my spiritual director said when you're you know I want you to give up giving things up. It's not what Lent's about. You're an addict for, and I was miserable because mm. I love the sugar so much. So I'm so then one year after that I'm like okay I'm not gonna give up I'm gonna give up any I'm gonna try to do the justice thing so I will give up any chocolate that's not fair trade. Mm. So now it's this is the thing this Catholic social justice thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like you know so I love tea but I don't need tea. Mm-hmm. I could give that money you know I could do something else with it. So I'm like if I get it now I feel like I have to get yeah. the fair trade. Yeah yeah. Or at least direct trade, which is kind of fair trade in shorts. Like, not quite that. And I'm just loving whoever, like, zipped forward said, does this podcast ever get interesting, this one? And they're like, well, I really love this mango, too. People, no, people feel very strongly about coffee and tea. They so, do. So yeah. people like that part of the... Oh, yeah. The, no, it's a big... Like, it's a big. You can see the spikes in there. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> well, welcome, welcome to Tea Talk. Next week, yeah. we'll be addressing green teas. Ew! <laughs> Healthy, but nasty. Good if you're concerned about cancer. Yeah, so, yeah there you go. Uh, all right. Second question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gosh, that one last one was brutal. So. I know. We'll, we'll, we'll dial it down. We'll dial it down. Oh, thank God. Do you have a favorite or least favorite liturgical song? Oh, yeah, I do have. Here's one of the places I put my foot in it. I don't even know. What is the song? You may not. There's one that's like, eat my body, drink my blood. Do you know this? Mm-mm. I don't even know. Because, again, you know, I wasn't, I didn't get the full Catholic upbringing. But there is one. I remember hearing that verse, and I'm like, really? I mean, that's what we're doing. But mm-hmm. there's something about singing it to a clown tune yeah. that's just Makes wrong. Makes it a little more cannibally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, is the, that is the adjective, right. <laughs> and and just and tacky. And I like, I hate the clowns. I hate mm. clowns. I don't mm. know. How, how are you on clowns? I'm all right. You're all right with clowns? Yeah. I don't like clowns. So that's a big thing. Like the coffee tea, the clowns, mm. no clowns. Okay. Also, snake spiders. I hate them both. Do you yeah. really? Yeah. So that's very ecumenical of you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I live okay. in Florida, so I see both. Oh, a lot. oh yeah. yeah. So you know that's informed. That's yeah. informed. So I actually said something in a class once about you know this is not the best way to talk about this, and the student just like that's what they sang at my grandpa's funeral, and I'm like I stink. I really <laughs> like I didn't need to say that. You know, you're trying to like be you, and like okay, this song really stinks, and it's like ah. And you could never predict that. You could. So, so it's just like, don't do that. But this is why I made Biden a verb just for yeah, me. That's a it's good like, Biden, yeah. It's like Peter Fon says about hell. You know, you have to take hell seriously as a possibility for me first mm. and then for others. Like, Bidening is a possibility for me first. Maybe <laughs> others do this, but I know that this is what I do. For people of another generation, this could be Hagriding. You know, mm. oh, shouldn't have said that. Mm-hmm. But um, I love, you know, the, the Joe. He's just, I'm going to miss him. So, wait, there was a question. Favorite or least favorite? Okay, so that would be my least favorite, and I don't know what it is. My most – that's so hard. I went to a funeral recently of this wonderful man who was a pillar of the parish I go to, which is a family mass community. So we meet in the gym, and during the psalm, the kids actually, like, are dancing. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of rocky. And so one of the founders of this community, God bless him, Bill Donnelly, wonderful guy. And so he died. 
And we went to his funeral, and it made me rethink, okay, so what songs do I want at my funeral? And I can't remember all of them, but I, it made me remember that there's a song I really like the lyrics to, but I didn't like the tune, so I wrote another setting for it, mm. which is Immortal Invisible. Do you know, Immortal Invisible, God only... And people like, turn it off! God only wise in light and accessible, hidden mm. from our eyes. It's, it's spectacular. The lyrics are so, mm. so beautiful. But I think the tune is a little kind of like, we're marching, and a little mil- militaristic. So I wrote another setting of it, and I was thinking, you know, I could die anyway time Mm -hmm. I really gotta like get find somebody who knows music and like get them this tune so but I love the lyrics to that and and there's a lot you know there's one that I'm trying to think there's one that makes me cry Um, I love the ubi caritas chant Mm -hmm. the Teze thing's okay but the chant the ubi caritas et amor I like that a lot and the pange lingua holy Mm -hmm. thursday ah that is nice. that's some good stuff. Is that is that a good set? That's we got the Latin. Yeah. We got the okay. But I'm really sorry for everybody who loves that. Eat my body during the cannibal. <laughs> but he called it cannibally. He called it that. You know. Yeah. I mean, we've been accused of that as a church in general. So. Well, that's interesting. That was yeah. that was a big yeah freshman conversation topic. All right. Of whom or what would you be the patron saint? Oh no! Wow. <laughs> oh wow! Because usually. Like, you have to have something cut off, and then you're the patron saint of that. <laughs> so tall people probably okay. would, be, <laughs> would be a good one. The visual, for those who don't know me, I think, you know, I maybe if I really stand up straight, 4'10". Mm-hmm. So, so that, in, in the, you know, beautiful <laughs> logic of the church, basketball players, professional okay. basketball players would probably, <laughs> would probably be good. All right. right. I like that. All right. Okay. If you had not gone the the religious studies route and you would and you had done a different career, or if there's a different career you kind of wish you had you had done, what would that be? You know, I still think about that because I often wonder I'm really interested in vocation. It's one of the things that a lot of us are, Mm -hmm. right? And you do the Beekner, you know, the Beekner, Mm -hmm. right, thing. So you do the ubiquitous, you know, the place God calls you to, the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet, which is nice. And I still often think, did I get there? Um, So I'm 54 now. So the odds of my changing are small. And, you know, that's all right because I, I do a... Nine years ago now, a student, I created a vocation, broadly construed, beaconry mm-hmm. vocation program for students. And it's great. It's, it's the best thing we do in our time at St. Mary's and whatever. So it's a wonderful thing. Get four nice dinners with faculty and administrators. And, you know, same table. They get to know each other, ask these great questions. And so I have to say, first, I had a very winding road to where mm-hmm. I am. Certainly didn't expect to get here. And there's plenty of times when I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not a good enough teacher I'm not a, you know, I don't write enough. I don't publish enough. Somebody else should have gotten this job. Mm. Um, I took a job from a perfectly qualified person who would have. Yeah. I feel that way done, sometimes. Do you really? Yeah. So is this just imposter syndrome? How wide? So call in now and let us know if you feel this way. <laughs> we'll wait. I think I think for me, it, maybe it's partly that, but it's also, it's a lot. That I just have a lot of frustration for friends who like, 
it's not just that I'm not good. It's that I'm right. really sad that these other people who aren't getting what I think they deserve. Right, and who are awesome. Yeah. And who are awesome. So they're, like, adjuncting. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I know. Right, and, and it's like it's like going to those Oxfam banquets. Did you ever do that, the mm-hmm. Thursday, or any of these fast banquets, where, like, two people get a steak dinner, mm-hmm. and then, like, 15 people get, like, right? And then yeah. the rest of people get, like, water. And you get, and the one time I, did, like, I got the steak. And I'm like, here, help me eat the steak. No, we don't want your steak. We want to watch you eat it. So there's something, I mean, there is this kind of guilt, and it's very conspicuous mm-hmm. that, like, I got it, and I got tenure, and here I am. And what? So, so anyway, this vocation program is useful because when you think, right, you learn so much by teaching. So when the student and I and Kathleen Dolphin, who was the wonderful director of our Center for Spiritual, and we sat down and planned this, like, you know, we want vocation. It's not just career. Teachers tend to think mm-hmm. that way, Right. The first year we offered it, in fact, one of the students uh, was really excited about this. They said, vocation isn't just your career. It's, it's family. It's friends. It's how you spend your money. It's, I mean, I, I get my hair cut every two years when it's long enough to donate. Mm-hmm. There are plenty of days when I wake up and I'm like, man, I'm not in the right place <laughs> at all, but my hair is going to grow a little bit, and it's going to be a wig for some kid mm-hmm. who lost her hair because of chemo. And that's my vocation today. Mm-hmm. Grow hair. Grow. <laughs> and that's it. And that feels like that's the height of being vocational that day. So, so we try to talk about all these things, and you know, you're not, you may not get your dream job, and that's all right. And and college can't promise your dream, your dream job. Nobody can. Mm-hmm. Although I do say, if you pay attention in college, you'll get more jokes, mm-hmm. and that alone is worth it. So I do say I can promise you that. Fair enough. So, but you're going to have to look at vocation very broadly at different parts of your life, and say, you know, how is nurturing this friendship and developing that? How is that really vocational for me? My volunteer work, my prayer life right now is vocational for me. So the student said. You know, that is so, that that just blows me away because I always thought vocation was just job. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, wow, so, so why did you think that? What changed your mind? She said, well, I look at my professors and all they do is work. And I'm like, we're blowing it. Mm-hmm. But we feel that way, right? You come here and people, oh, I published this and I'm doing this and I gave this paper. I'm going to CTSA and I gave me a paper. And people generally handle it beautifully, but, you know, we have to be conscious of the fact that the witness we're giving Sometimes with I got to do more, and the mm-hmm. papers are late, and I got to do this, and I should give another paper. And then it's really not modeling what it means to be living a life on the values and you know with the ultimate goal mm-hmm. that we have. It's yeah. like you know we want to be witnessing to love the Lord, and we want to use our gifts in this way. You know, and perfectionism mm-hmm. is the enemy of that, not not the servant of that. So so what else would I've done? You know, I did try the pre-med thing, and that didn't work out. I might have stayed teaching high school, though I probably would have had the same doubts about that. What what could I have done? Yeah, I don't know if they, anybody would have paid me to do anything else. <laughs> How many of you feel like that? Call in now. Well, wait. Uh, yeah, I don't. Oh, okay, well, I did think at one point, actually, I did think of leaving teaching because I just felt like I wasn't, it was like third year, fourth year. I'm like, you know, this is, and the teaching review is like, she's too hard, and she's, you know, whatever, and this class was living hell. And, and so I'm like, I'm going to spend a year being the best teacher. And, and I'd always heard teaching high school ever, you're a great teacher, you're natural, you're wonderful, whatever. But I'm like, you know, the students don't, don't seem to be feeling it. So I got into Wabash, and I did that for him. I'm like, I'm going to, you know, go full teacher. I'm going to try to be the best teacher I could be. And the next year, I won the teaching award mm. faster than anybody else at my school had ever done. So I'm mm. like, okay. So it gets to be a thing of anybody who's thoughtful about what they do. Not Okay, not everybody. Maybe it's the six old. Mm-hmm. To go back to James, I don't know if you know that. Mm-hmm. 
where did you go to school that you didn't read William James? No, oh, sorry, uh, just, just no. been a while. Yeah, yeah, right, right. But yeah, it's a certain disposition that um, one of the things you're going to get out of your vocation, the job part of your vocation, is not the sense I'm I'm exactly where I should be. And I know people like that, and that's mm-hmm. great. Um, so so yeah, I I maybe would. So anyway, when I was discerning leaving. I was, and I don't know if I would have been any better at this, I was thinking of getting certified as a naturalist. Mm. So like working in a state park and like, okay, this is a jack-in-the-pulpit. Now what does that do for the, you know? So being out in nature, Mm -hmm. and uh, I volunteered at a camp for a while, and I kind of got to be the default nature counselor. (laughs) And it was gradually a little bit of what people call birding. I mean, I prefer to call bird-watching still, Mm -hmm. but that's not cool. Verbing weirds language, as Mm -hmm. Calvin of Kelvin Hobbs says, but we do it. And I remember being, and it was, you know, kids from Boston. It was some Harvard people who ran it, and it's a wonderful Catholic couple. And I remember this one kid who was, you know, fairly disaffected at first, and we had to climb three mountains in Vermont, including the tallest. And we get to the top of one of the mountains, and he comes and gets me. He's like, there's this bird. And so we're chasing all over, like, in the midst on these rocks, looking for this bird to try to find out what it is. And we got it. And it was a junco, which I don't know if you know what a junco is. Perfectly nice bird. Not super rare, but he probably didn't see anything but sparrows and mm-hmm. robins where he was. And he was really excited. So I'm like, you know, that's great. You know, good job. And, uh, and then when we're given awards night at the end of the thing, we're like, well, we should give a best bird watcher award. And I'm like, you know, that kid is going to get so made fun of. Like, you come here, and when he goes back, you know. He's going to get made fun of. And they're like, no, 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 we got to do it. And I'm like, okay, well, it's going to be this kid. I think his name is Juan. It's going to be, you know, because he just, he was on fire and he mm-hmm. found it and he knows a junko. So they get there and they're given all the awards and the best sports or whatever, and like, and the best bird watcher award. And I'm like, no, face palming. And he just stands up and says, that's me, man. And it was just, so I thought, you know, maybe I could do that. Okay. Maybe I could do more of that. Boy, was that a long answer. <laughs> no, it's a beautiful story. That, it was, a, it was yeah. a great it was a great moment. It yeah, was yeah. a great moment. That's wonderful. Well, thank you. Last question. Yeah. If, if somehow you had become Pope, what name would you have taken? You know, I think I'm one of those kids who spent a lot of time on the confirmation name mm. thing. Did you did you have a confirmation name, or were you reaffirm your baptismal name? I was a convert, so I was baptized and confirmed at the same time. So I, I didn't know that. I, so I, I, That's I, I don't I don't know whether it's a baptismal name or a confirmation name. Actually. I'm sorry for making a, an assumption there. No, it's all right. That was yeah. Yeah. But you had Stephen, so you were in mm-hmm. good. That was good I had my birth name, yeah. and yeah, yeah, so you can't really do any better than that. Do you have a middle name? Yeah, Michael. Mike. Yeah. Okay, so you no, had, you had solid, two for, yeah. Pretty solid biblical you names. Were, yeah, yeah. You were in great. And so my name is Anita Marie. Uh, Marie being, I think, probably along with Catherine, like mm-hmm. the two, you know, the number, uh, the, the main middle names. So for confirmation name, this was before, you know, people got the theology of reaffirm. You're reaffirming your baptismal mm-hmm. name is, is a good way to go. But I was very precocious. So I chose Mary, which mm-hmm. is very much like that. And, and I'm such a geek, and I'm not good at making decisions. So I'm like, well, is that Mary for the mother of God? Is that Mary for Magdalene? Or is that Mary for Grandma, mm-hmm. who, you know, prayed for me and was, you know, really was where Catholicism came from mm-hmm. for me? And I'm like, I don't have to decide. Mm-hmm. It's just Mary. So I think I would, yeah, Pope Mary. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. Thanks. So thank you so much for doing this. This was wonderful. Oh, you're I had the a best. Time, you're so. the best. No, that was really fun. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. 
The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo.